welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Good morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. In this chapter, we've been given several instructions about how the church should function. In verses 1 and 2, Paul emphasizes the family dynamic of the church. We are to value and honor one another as fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters. Loving and respecting one another as a godly family actually guards us from tearing one another apart, as so many human organizations do. And it also causes the world around us to look at us and wonder, why do they care so much? In verses 3 through 16, we saw one specific implication of this family dynamic and how we treat destitute widows within this church. Just as a godly family would never let a mother or a sister starve and sleep out on the street, this family will never allow our sisters and mothers in the faith to become destitute. This will require personal sacrifice on our part, but to us it simply does not matter because we are the family of God. And we stand ready and willing to put on public display the beauty of God's kingdom, of his family. In verses 17 through 20, Paul changes direction slightly and emphasizes the church's responsibility to minister to the elders who lead and teach them. It's important as I use this word elder to remember that we believe the terms elder, bishop, pastor, overseer, these words that the scriptures use, that they all refer to the same office into the church, those who lead and teach the church. And there are three ways in verses 17 through 20 that the church is to minister to the elders. First, the church pays elders according to their excellent labor, just like we pay any other, for any other goods or services out in the community. For the laborer deserves his wages. Secondly, the church must not welcome with open arms an accusation against an elder. Instead, the church must expect false accusations to come against the elder who proclaims the word of God without fearing man. It will come. And the church must reject any charge against him until it is fully proven. Third, an elder, must, an elder must be rebuked in the presence of the entire congregation if he is found guilty of disqualifying sin. This may, may sound hateful or unkind, but in reality, this is a kindness to your elders because the fear of public rebuke can guard them in moments of weakness. Though contrary to our natural inclination, loving rebuke, from Christians is a gift from God to his people. Paul must have realized the great difficulty of keeping these rules, especially the one about rebuking a sinning elder in front of the entire con- congregation, 
because in the very next verse, he will bring Timothy into the throne room of heaven, charging him to keep these rules. But before we go any further, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, God Almighty, bless the reading and preaching of your word for your glory and the eternal joy of your people. Please do this, Lord. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 21, Paul says to Timothy, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. It's not difficult to grasp the picture Paul is drawing. Timothy, standing before the throne of God, with Jesus Christ at his right hand, and all around them stands the hosts of heaven. In front of these witnesses, Paul says, Will you, Timothy, faithfully keep these heavenly commands? Paul is not artificially trying to scare Timothy or the Ephesian church into obedience. Instead, he is removing the veil of this physical world around us and revealing the spiritual reality that heaven is watching. God is your ultimate judge, not man. Too often we become so focused on the physical world around us that we forget about the spiritual reality that we live and breathe in the presence of Almighty God. He sees all. There is nowhere we can hide from Him. When we neglect the reality of the power and presence of God, then we become plagued by the fear of man. Life can become a nightmare for the Christian, filled with paralyzing fear fear of that which cannot truly harm us. Jesus charged his disciples to never fear man because man can only harm the body, but instead fear God. Because he is the judge of the eternal destiny of your soul. And similarly, Paul is calling Timothy to fear God, which means to be overwhelmed in reverence and awe at the majesty, wonder, wrath, justice, holiness, mercy, grace, love, and power of God that is revealed through his words and in his deeds. When we daily live in reverence and awe of this redeeming God, then we awake from the nightmare of life and realize that the people in situations that were terrorizing our souls are nothing more than chihuahuas yapping compared to the Lion of Judah who walks beside us. Timothy had a lot of chihuahuas yapping at him in Ephesus. In this short letter, we've heard about arrogant and loud false teachers, disruptive wealthy women, holy men who say Timothy is a sinner for eating certain foods, older men who disregard Timothy because he's only in his late 30s, and the list could go on. If Timothy did not daily return to the reality of the power and presence of his God, then the yapping of the chihuahuas, these little rat dogs, would soon begin to sound like the roaring of terrible and ferocious beasts. 
And Timothy would eventually give in to the fear of man. This is the blindness that happens to us when we take our eyes off God and focus on the situations and the people that scare us in life. If a, if a Christian gives in to the fear of man, it means he has taken the reverence and awe that belong to God alone and placed it at the feet of another. It is to worship another. Literally, it is to say in our hearts, You, O man that I fear, are more worthy of my obedience and submission than Almighty God. It's pretty easy for us all to be shocked at such a blasphemous statement, but haven't we all struggled with this very thing from the earliest days of childhood? My daughter, who is seven, knows that God commands her to show her love for Him by obeying her parents. And she knows her daddy has told her not to jump off the top of her bunk bed. This line of reasoning restrains her, and she normally submits in this area to her God. But bring into the equation another seven-year-old who doesn't know our family rule, and who proceeds to jump off the top of the bunk bed. Immediately the fear of man wages war in my daughter's heart, and she begins to wonder, what or what will happen? Maybe I will hurt my friend's feelings if I tell her my daddy's rule. What if they don't like me anymore? What if they won't play with me anymore? Or worst of all, what if they call me a goody-two-shoes? To a seven-year-old, these fears are like the roar of a terrible and ferocious beast in their heart. And they do war, whether they will love their God or love their friend. Though the fears of a seven-year-old may look humorous to us now that we're all grown up and mature, the fact is that the fear of man is still our constant companion. It tends to show itself when an opportunity to witness to the lost crosses our path. Or when a husband is burdened about his wife's sin. Or when your adult child is sleeping with his girlfriend. Or when you're sitting with a group of Christians and realize the conversation has crossed the line into full-blown gossip. Or... When you're preaching through 1 Timothy and Paul says several socially unacceptable things about women not being allowed to teach men in the church. These things often stoke fear in our hearts. And each time we are forced to make a choice, will we fall down and worship man? Or will we worship God Almighty? Without a doubt, Timothy was battling the fear of man. That is why in verse 21, if you look with me, Paul brings him into the throne room of God and charges him to keep God's commandment without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. To prejudge means to judge before or to make your mind up before you even hear the matter. Partiality means to lean in one direction unfairly or unjustly, like a scale that has been tampered with. 
Put these two things together and you have someone who leans towards his favorite people and makes judgments in their favor because before he even hears all the facts or simply despite all the facts. When these negative qualities are found in a leader, then injustice and corruption abound. This is Paul's concern for Timothy and for the church in Ephesus. If Timothy leans towards or favors his favorite people or or any specific person in the church because that person is a friend, because they're wealthy, influential, older, or any other reason, then the church will become corrupt. Paul has just finished writing about rebuking sinning elders in the presence of the entire congregation, which is a very difficult responsibility, especially when you realize that these men would likely be older, influential, and often friends. But the fear of man cannot be allowed to influence Timothy's actions, causing him to lean toward any one of these men caught in sin and then judge them innocent, even though their guilt is clear to all. This admonition to fear God, not man, sits in the middle of two essential responsibilities of the church. On the one side, in verse 20, as we just saw, a church must rebuke sinning elders in the presence of all. But immediately following verse 21, Paul gives another essential responsibility of the church where the fear of man can have no place. Paul says to Timothy in verse 22, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The scriptures use the picture of putting hands on someone for different reasons. In the book of Numbers, the Levites were appointed as priests to Israel through a ceremony that included the laying on of hands. At another time, Moses handed over the leadership of a nation to Joshua through the laying on of his hands. To lay hands on someone can also mean to do physical harm. Like when Paul was beaten and dragged off to prison in Acts 16. At other times, laying hands on someone imparted a blessing to them or healed them of a disease. But in Acts and in the epistles, the church is given the example of praying over and laying hands on those who are being appointed to a specific task in the church. In Acts 6, The apostles prayed over and laid their hands on seven men, appointing them to service in the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 13, the Holy Spirit speaks specifically to the church in Antioch, saying, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. In this passage, the Holy Spirit tells the church to set apart or distinguish specific men for a specific task. So what does the church do? They fast, pray over, and then lay their hands on them as a physical sign of what the Holy Spirit was doing within the church. Also in 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 1, we see glimpses 
of how Timothy was commissioned to the task of preaching and teaching when a council of elders laid their hands on him. In all these examples, it is either implied or specifically stated that the church was publicly acknowledging the Spirit's leading by the laying on of their hands. In this context, to lay your hands on someone essentially means this, that you are affirming this individual is biblically qualified for the specific task, and that you are affirming the Spirit of God's leading in appointing them to the specific. And in 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul is warning Timothy to be very careful before he places his hands on anyone, appointing them to the task of leading and teaching the church as elders is specifically what seems to be in mind in verse 22. He first says, do not be hasty or do not rush through the process of appointing elders. In context, it seems clear that the evaluation process is what should not be rushed through. In a small church, it can be very exciting when anyone raises their hand saying they desire to serve the church as an elder, especially if that person has the ability to preach or teach. Sometimes out of sheer joy or sometimes out of desperation, you might skip the formalities and appoint someone as an elder because they are generally well-liked in the congregation. But it is a mistake to appoint someone to the role of elder if you do not truly know them. If the church cannot honestly say that his character has withstood the biblical test, without honest an intensive evaluation, Paul says you have been careless and have put yourself in danger of being guilty of sin. You see, Paul points out that those who affirm an elder candidate without doing the hard work of honest and intensive evaluation have a hand in the failings of a sinning elder. To lay your hand on someone to affirm them is to have a hand in their ministry to some degree. An example of the opposite would be when Pilate well, would be what Pilate did when the Jews repeatedly called for the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate repeatedly said, "I see no fault in him. There's nothing in him deserving of death." But in Matthew 27:24, we, we read what happens next. It says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Pilate did not agree with the punishment and attempted to clear his name of wrongdoing by washing his hands of the matter publicly. But to lay your hands on an elder candidate is to publicly affirm that you stand behind this candidate because you know he has been evaluated and has been affirmed according to God's word. To skip honest and intensive evaluation is to disobey the command of God and also puts you at risk of having 
a hand in any damage caused by the sitting elder you carelessly appoint. Please realize, though, this warning is for those who would carelessly appoint an elder. But if we do the hard work of evaluating elder candidates here at Agape, and we then appoint them according to biblical standards, then we are not responsible for their future failings that we could not possibly have prevented. If we walk faithfully according to the Word of God, we can appoint elders without fear. At the end of verse 22, Paul emphasizes the necessity that Timothy remains above reproach in all his dealings by saying, keep yourself pure. This phrase must stir in Paul's mind some private correspondence between him and Timothy because he completely breaks from the flow of thought and adds this stand-alone instruction. He says in verse 23, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. To us, this statement seems completely out of place and could leave us scratching our heads. But with a little effort, it's not impossible to see Paul's reasoning. He has just instructed Timothy to keep himself pure. But by this, he does not mean that Timothy must remove himself from the world like so many who hide in a monastery where itchy, scratchy clothes consume only moldy bread and water and simply never benefit from the good gifts of God. We already know from chapter 4, our study there, that there were some in Ephesus who forbid Christians to get married because something so pleasant to us must be evil. And then on top of that, they would make lists of the foods that Christians could and couldn't eat. These false teachers added laws to Christ's instruction, supposedly somehow making Christians even holier if they followed their strict laws. But on the other hand, it is overwhelmingly clear throughout the New Testament that Christians battled with the sins of sexual immorality, gluttony, idol worship, and drunkenness. This is where we find Timothy between these two things. Those who deny themselves and others all forms of pleasure and those who are controlled by their lusts and worship earthly pleasure. We cannot know for sure, but most likely Timothy had previously decided that the best course of action was to completely stop drinking wine in order to never be accused of being a drunkard. This would ensure that Timothy was above reproach in this area so that he could get on with the essential task of preaching and teaching. But in a populated city like Ephesus, water sources were contaminated with anything and everything that runs downhill. And Timothy seems to be physically suffering from only drinking this contaminated water. Paul writes these words into Timothy's life, bringing comfort to him spiritually and physically. This sentence reminds Timothy that putting wine to his lips 
will not defile him. It will not make him unpure. Just as Jesus said to his disciples, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. In Matthew 15, pointing to what's coming out of you, your deeds and your words, revealing the sin, the defilement of your heart. Paul's words also remind Timothy that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. We saw that in our study in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4-5. through 5. With this knowledge, Timothy could receive wine as a good gift from God into his diet if he received it as the word of God instructs and if he did it, did so with a prayer of thanksgiving to his God. Church, by all means hate drunkenness because God hates drunkenness. But don't put the blame and don't hate God's good gifts to his people. Gifts like sexual pleasure, food, drink, money, rest, or work. See them as God sees them. As tools for His glory and for the joy of His people. Hate the lusts of your flesh that twists these things and turns them into idols. But do not waste your energy and time hating the gift. The gift is not the instigator of our sin. The instigator of our sin is our own heart. The lust and evil desires of our own heart. Going back to Paul's main point in this passage, looking at verses 24 and 25, they take us straight back to appointing elders with caution. Paul warns, beginning in verse 24, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This word, conspicuous, I had to look up myself. It means evident beforehand or clearly visible. The point is, is that some people's sins are clearly visible. It's like a parade going before the sinner. It would be very hard to miss the evidence. But Paul says, be careful. Other people's sins appear after, only appear after, honest and intensive evaluation. This is the reason Timothy should not be hasty in laying on of hands. Because an elder candidate may be popular, may be a great speaker, may have a lot of knowledge, may not have any open and and right in front of your face sins in his life. But the real question is whether or not they are an example of godliness in their private life as well as their public life. This evaluation does take time. And it takes effort. 
but the rewards are well worth it. Not only will we protect the local church from unqualified leadership, we will also encourage the man who passes the test. No man is without sin, and no man who desires to be an elder can honestly say that they have perfectly lived out the biblical qualifications. No man can say that. But can you imagine his encouragement when a church honestly and intensively evaluates his life and then says with joy, you are a consistent example of godliness. Will you lead and teach us? Their evaluation affirms that his desire is not just something he has worked up in himself, but instead is the leading of the Spirit of God in his life. Paul gives one final word on the matter in verse 25. He points out the reverse side of the coin and states that good works are also clearly visible, and even those that are not will not remain hidden. Again, Paul is encouraging Timothy to take a close look at those in the church who express a desire to serve as an elder because he may be surprised at what he finds. Some people are outgoing and well-known in the church and their godly character may be easier to determine. But there are others who are gifted at serving the church without ever being seen. They may be active in community evangelism, or in acts of mercy, or in discipleship one-on-one, which is teaching the things that Christ has taught us. And maybe the majority of the church may never even know half the deeds they have done out of love for their God. But in the process of honest and intensive evaluation, the church may be pleasantly surprised to realize more and more the godly character of a less obvious elder candidate. The Spirit of God has often unexpectedly provided for the church in this way. And this should not surprise us, church. After all, the church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He cares more about his church than any one of us ever could. He, will he not provide for that which he died for, instituted, sent the Holy Spirit to, and waits for with eager anticipation. Jesus loves his church. He loves us as his own body, as his beloved bride, and as his cherished family. He will provide for his church. Maybe not the way we expected but always for His glory and for our good. Our responsibility is to be faithful to His commandments, holding them high above the wisdom of man, while we wait eagerly for His return. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You again for Your Word. I thank You that it is Your wisdom gifted to your people. What a joy it is to know that you are on our side, or better yet, that we can be on your side.
that we can fight with you the battles of this life if we but look at your word, that we drink deeply from it, and that we rejoice to follow you wherever you lead. Lord, I pray for our, our little family here. I pray, Lord, that we would follow your word together in unity, that we, the world would look at us and say, why do they care so much? Why do they sacrifice of their, of their wealth, of their time, of their energy? Why would they do that? And that may be, Lord, that the light of the gospel would shine into their hearts because we have been faithful to you. Lord, would you do this for your glory and for the joy of your people?